They're pretty useless, and that's a nice way to put it. Glad they're not working my kitchen at home. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 74 of the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking kitchens. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And a very quick review to get us underway. Semi-Pro is ace, five stars by So Damn Good from Australia. Best podcast on the interwebs by a long shot. Really well structured, always on point with more contemporary topics that aren't always well canvassed. It makes Thursdays that much more exciting. Keep it up. Thank you very much, so damn good, for dropping in and writing that review. It really does mean a lot to me. And a reminder to you that if you do like the show, please take some time to go to iTunes and write a review because it makes me happy. Thank you very much. And let's get started. I have just a touch of news this week, a little bit of controversy in my mind, all about Matt Goss. I've got an article here from Cycling News from his director sportif, White, and I've got to say, I think White has gone soft on Goss because, and I quote, we firmly believe that while Gossi is never going to outsprint Mark Cavendish, Marcel Kittle, or Greipel, he's proven on the longer races such as Milan-San Remo and stages of the Giro d'Italia that he can be quite effective. And another quote, Gossi is never going to be the guy that wins 10 races in a season, but if we do our job correctly and give him the support he needs, he can win the big races, and we expect him to do just that this year. Well, Gossi, this really is your year. You have to turn it around. Just because your director sportive has gone soft on you doesn't mean the fans of Orica Green Edge and yourself are. You've got to pull it out. You've got to actually get some wins this year and make it some big ones. The first clip that I've got for you is a YouTube clip from Cycling Inform, and it's all about altitude training, and it's a quick demo that they do on an actual trainer with a cyclist while he's attached to a machine that reduces the amount of oxygen that his body is allowed to take in. This is pretty crazy, and it's simulating what it would be like riding high up in altitude. And I do believe they have an oximeter on his finger at the time, so you can see that his oxygen is being reduced down to quite low and dangerous levels but it's interesting that he's trying to maintain 150 watts but the workload is going up and up and up this is pretty cool stuff and i really haven't dug into much of this and this is a good intro for yourself as well as it was for me when i first checked it out so if you are interested in sort of training like this or looking at the possibilities start here and then move on maybe i was something i will look at in the future but definitely for now i'm just fascinated and staying on the sidelines of that one the second one is an actual scientific study that came out in the International Journal of Sports Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism this week and it was a comparison of caffeine versus pseudoephedrine on cycling time trial performance. The interesting thing that is noted in the study itself is that pseudoephedrine is banned for competitive cycling but caffeine isn't. So they wanted to test the difference to see whether a legal stimulant would actually outperform an illegal one and interestingly enough in this study which had 10 well-trained cyclists or triathletes 
doing four time trials, they actually found that the caffeine had a better effect on the second half of their time trials than the pseudoephedrine had. I find it interesting, not just from the scientific and performance aspect, but from bringing up this idea that there can be something on the banned list or something that's not on the banned list that is actually more effective. And I think it really strikes me as something that needs further discussion. But the final bit of news from this week, I could not go past talking about this, the Kilo world record. It may not be an Olympic discipline anymore, so there aren't as many people putting in the work to go after this record, but it really is a classic cycling test. The one minute is one of the hardest efforts in our sport. If you've never done one minute flat out on a bike, you will never know what pain is. But the minute men definitely are a special breed, but it's hard to call Frenchman Francois Pervet one any longer after he smashed the world record in the second round at the 2013-14 UCI Track World Cup in Mexico. He clocked 56.303 seconds. That is astonishing considering considering the record, the previous record was 58.875 set by another Frenchman in 2001. Definitely, absolutely crazy. And you don't see things happening like that in track cycling much anymore. Probably because there are only a few Olympic track events left. Now let's roll into the nuts and bolts this week and winter cross-training options for cyclists. I've got to say winter is one of those times everywhere that I've lived has not really been a problem. I've been more of a sook than having any legitimate reasons not to get out on a bike. So this week when one of my athletes was having problems with snow, it really got me thinking about what are the alternatives because for me right now, snow is the enemy of cyclists and I'm not really just talking about the bits flowing around in the air and it's just on a chilly night. I'm talking about the thick, white, fluffy stuff, icy blocking roads, covering the ground, making it impossible to do any riding at any decent intensity. I'm sure you could get out there with a fat bike or spikes or something, but actually having a decent ride is just not possible. So what is a cyclist to do? And if you are a Southern Hemisphere dweller and you've never experienced a snowy winter, well, myself included, you've just got to think about your off-season because like we know in the Southern Hemisphere, the season is flipped upside down and you are actually racing all winter long. But there is definitely little use in talking about doing other sports during a race season. So just think of it for your off-season. But this is dedicated to those that live in snowbound winter climates, the unlucky ones that can't ride outside all year round. It's true that you can go straight to cross-country skiing as soon as there is snow on the ground. But I've got to say, for me, it's not a great option for a lot of reasons. It is probably the best aerobic workout that you can get on the snow. But it really is just another expensive lycra-clad sport. So if you have the cash, absolutely no problems, go for it. I have to say that if you don't have a history in the sport, then it probably has a really steep learning curve. Plus, it is super expensive. So if you're just starting out in the snow or you want cheaper alternatives, I've got a list of four sports with their benefits for your cycling 
when spring has sprung. But before I get cracking through those, I'm predominantly addressing the endurance aspect of cycling. Winter is a great time to hit the weights room or the yoga studio, or you could even get into your local indoor training group. But if you want time in heart rate zone two or endurance zones, then you want to be taking long slogs outside or inside in a sport that you can do it without being mind-numbingly, boringly done. Or at least something different to give your brain a refresh before you hit the bike hard in spring. But none of these alternative sports or activities will actually improve your cycling directly. Only getting on a bike will improve your cycling directly. And what I'm talking about there is efficiency, cadence. It's more about strengthening your bones, muscles, tendons, and your aerobic fitness. Outside of these, I definitely recommend at least two one-hour sessions on the trainer over winter. It shouldn't be too unmanageable by the people that hate getting on trainers. It isn't that difficult to get on there for an hour or two a week. I know people doing a whole lot more, but I'm trying to address this and help you. One way that I was trying to move away from the idea of cross-country skiing or any expensive sport that's hard to do, I set up a criteria on looking at activities or sports that cross over well for cycling, and it's kind of based on four factors. The first one, easy to learn but hard to master. So something you can get up and running quite quickly, but it takes you time to develop actual master skills in it, so you keep interested and, you're, and you want to learn the skills more and more and more as you get deeper and deeper into it. The second one, under 200 bucks for equipment or club investment as a startup cost. I really think we're talking about off-season here. We're talking about having some fun and we're talking about not blowing a whole lot of cash on another sport. You've already gone out and bought an expensive bike. You've already gone out and bought all the expensive equipment. Just hold back and make it as accessible financially as possible. Number three, potential to compete. If you want to go all the way, if just going on the thing or doing the activity or the sport on its own is not going to be good enough to keep you entertained and you want some competitive aspect during the off-season, then you have potential to do that. Number four, easy to access terrain or location. So you can get on your bike, I hope, from your front door and just go. Outside of that, you may have to drive to some other area, which I'm sure isn't too far away because it's not sustainable. So this is the same idea I want to carry over with the off-season. Yes, you can just leave your front door and you can just get going straight away or it's a 15-minute, 20-minute, half-an-hour commute to get there and that's it. Anything outside of that is too much of a pain in the ass and you won't do it when it comes down to it, especially if you can ride from your door but you have to go 30 minutes to go before you start doing any other exercise, there is no chance you're going to be doing it on a regular basis. Let's get into them. And sport number one, running. It's the most obvious in my mind simply because the startup effort and costs are very, very low. It's definitely one you have to build up to if you're not a regular runner. Otherwise, you will be dominated up the yin-yang. But I tell you what, running is easy. It's going to take some time to get your mechanics right and maybe your legs are going to hurt so you have to do some extra mobility work and stretching. But there is definitely 
no barriers to you just walking out your front door and going for a run. It may be a little bit difficult if you have three meters of snow at your front door, but we'll get to that in just a moment. The big question that I want to answer is, will running affect my cycling training? Or well, what does running do for cycling? When we're talking about running, the first thing that is exciting is that it takes a short amount of time to get a good solid workout in that is one aspect that is really really useful in the off season especially if it is a little cold outside time wise it's perfect the negatives though it is really debatable whether running actually helps your cycling performance because like i said you want to be a cyclist you've got to ride a bike but The training adaption is very specific, so the running and cycling actions are very different and require different muscle recruitment patterns and indeed even a different kind of muscle contraction. So non-runners only have to do one off-run to feel the effects for a few days, so then you're battling and you're off all exercises for a couple of days. Running training will also cause your body to adapt to make you a more efficient runner. This sounds obvious, but it includes things like having an effect on your biomechanics and even muscle and joint structures. Numerous cases exist where cyclists develop knee pain when getting back on the bike having done a little run cross-training, which absolutely sucks. So not only can your muscles and tendons adapt to running, which potentially changes the position on your bike, but I do believe also that it affects your leg speed. So you are having reduced leg speed once you are on a bike. And the biggie with running is the danger of just going straight out and smashing yourself on the first run and not being able to recover for a week or so because Dom's has absolutely owned you. There is a little danger there. And if you're going to choose running, you've got to build up to it. You've got to do walk, running, walk, run, walk. You've got to put some time into letting your body adjust. So it's an option, but it's not really one of my favorites. If we are talking about snow it's not the most practical sport either if it's snowing outside there is no way you can get out and go for a consistent run much like cycling so it's more likely that you have to find a dedicated indoor track where you can run which kind of sucks because it breaks the criteria of having to travel somewhere to do something so simple so bring on number two and number two is definitely a new one to me and I have to admit I've never done it it looks kind of interesting not as stimulating as a mountain bike ride but if it's cold and snowy then definitely snowshoeing with its emphasis on the low back and the quadriceps and the glutes it's probably the most complimentary to cycling out of the entire list that I've got down here and it can be a real power workout if you're feeling up for it if you don't know what it is it's basically just shoving a thing on your shoes to make sure you have a larger footprint and you can get over any type of icy or snowy terrain and it's not just for hiking or shuffling you can actually run in these things and as far as the terrain that you can cover that's going to dictate the pace you can do so you can choose different terrains depending on what pace you want to go and where you want your heart rate to sit but it's really a great way to maintain and improve your aerobic engine it's really similar to hill running where you can build up aerobic strength and the energy cost of snowshoeing is like hill running supersized because there is so much effort you have to put in to actually lifting each leg 
every single time. I'm sure it becomes really obvious when you strap them in and you realize the extra weight that you've got on your feet. And again, it follows that criteria of it requires little skill and minimal equipment where you can get away with a pair of snowshoes for under 300 bucks. So it covers around that $200 mark. And if you do live in the snow, you probably already have a big chunky pair of boots or waterproof shoes that you can use already. I think an interesting thing about snowshoeing is that it's not going to be as straightforward as running. You know, there are a lot of factors that affect how far you will be able to go, such as the terrain and the type of snow you're on. And you're probably going to cover less ground where training with a heart rate monitor will at least be able to quantify how hard you're going or how hard your body is working so you know that you're actually putting in the right amount of effort without just getting frustrated that you aren't traveling very fast. I guess it's like riding into a headwind with and without a power meter. You don't know actually how hard you're working so it just seems like this endless struggle to get going. Again, it's one of those things because the movement will be kind of foreign to you that you're going to have to break yourself in and take time to build up the strength and the flexibility in the key areas, things like the hip flexors and the calves, because they're really, really going to take a beating when it comes to this. And it's only after a certain amount of time that your body is going to adjust. And I really think that it's possible to get out for 90 to 120 minute workouts. I don't think that is overestimating how much time you can go out into the woods or wherever you're going and get lost. And so that is solid. That is absolutely solid, especially if you are stimulated by the outdoors and all you want to do is just enjoy what is out there rather than sitting on a trainer and getting bored out of your mind. I definitely think it's one of the better options and especially because you can race. There are snowshoe racing organizations all over snowy areas. I don't know exactly where they are, but I do have a link in the show notes to snowshoeracing.com. So overall, the action might be better and it might be a better option for you, but it also might be hard to sit in an endurance zone depending on the terrain that you're in. So if you're trying to increase the workout intensity, then you might want to try the next exercise, which number three is swimming. I've got to admit, it's my least favorite personally and I believe for cyclists. And it's not just because I hate swimming or whatever, or I believe that cyclists can't swim, which generally they just flap about and they can't really swim that well. But there are some benefits to it and it can be helpful for other reasons. And one of the interesting things that it can be helpful for is teaching you breath control. Because you expel all of your air underwater, then refill your lungs during the brief moment that your head is turned. To improve in swimming, you need to relax. And that's a good lesson for cycling. You can't have tense muscles when you swim or ride at your best. If you remember this when you're climbing, for instance, it's really a big help. So that's one area that it would train you how to actually breathe better under stressful situations. But swimming can give you a quick workout. It's another one of those where 30 minutes is enough to smash you. But it's a good exercise for the shoulders while being gentle on the body overall. So these are its positives, that it's gentle on the body overall. So if you want to give your body a bit of a break from any hard pounding or whatever that you're doing, I don't know what you're doing when you're hard pounding, but if you actually get in there and use your arms a bit more, it's going to help you. I don't think 
that overall the arm movement is going to do anything but help you free it up a little more and give you a bit more flexibility in those arms which you might not normally get because you just ignore your arms all road season but definitely you can stick to swimming and build up over time it is one of those sports that you probably know how to swim so you can get in the water you may not be very efficient initially but over time you can kind of tweak that and I have found that my fitness increases quite rapidly and I go from 100 to 200, 500, 1000 I can actually build on workouts that I've had and it feels good to to be able to build on these. The interesting question that I was asking about swimming is the effect of swimming intensity on cycling performance. I couldn't find anything that isolated swimming and cycling performance. It was more linked to swimming, cycling and overall triathlon performance. That is something that can't be avoided, bringing triathletes into the conversation because this is their bread and butter. There is a study that I have found called The Effect of Swimming Intensity on Subsequent Cycling and Overall Triathlon Performance. And its objectives were to investigate the effects of different swimming intensities on subsequent cycling and triathlon performance. So nine highly trained male athletes completed five separate lab sessions comprising one graded exercise test, a swim time trial, and three sprint distance triathlons. So it's not going to directly transfer over to cycling, but you'll get the idea in a moment. The cycling and running were performed at a perceived maximal intensity while swimming stroke mechanics were measured during the swim. The results were that a swimming intensity below that of a time trial effort significantly improves subsequent cycling and overall triathlon performance. That is pretty cool. It's pretty cool to know that you can jump in the water and not actually flap around and kill yourself getting a workout in, but there could be a potential that it is still adding to your aerobic endurance. Does that sound obvious? Is that what I've been talking about? Well, maybe, but the idea behind science is to try and prove that when someone opens their mouth, they're trying to prove that what they're talking about is or isn't complete crap. I'd say swimming overall, depending on where your local swimming center is, it could be nice and refreshing because it's going to be warm in there at least. But something about swimming, it just doesn't equate to me. And I've got to say, it bores me to tears. Maybe these days because you can shove some things in your ears and you can get underwater heart rate monitors and things. But really, you want to stick your head down and do a black line. I would rather be on a trainer looking at a boring beige wall. But if you do like swimming and you maybe are an undercover triathlete posing as a cyclist, then definitely there is the option out there to test out swimming when the snow is on the ground. Now, moving to number four and the final one. It's got to be my favorite as well, I think. And I've done it myself for smaller kind of workouts. I've never done it for longer workouts. What am I talking about? I'm talking about rowing, specifically indoor rowing. And one rowing workout will use your major muscle groups that cycling uses. It develops strength, power, and aerobic endurance simultaneously. It's really a secret weapon of endurance athletes. So why rowing? Well, cycling gets the biggest boost from rowing because it develops power for cycling better than it does for swimming or any other sports because it the majority of the effort is coming from your legs. The arms themselves, they just finish the movement. So explosive leg power comes into play during the drive phase of rowing. And rowing, it does have that upper body aspect as well and core strength. I'd say the core strength is more important for the upper body, but definitely there is a component there where that upper body is going to help. It can't 
improve your technique on the bike, but it could build strength. And the biggest benefit is definitely the cardiovascular fitness component. Because it is a full body workout, it is so close to something like cross-country skiing that your body is in full constant motion and that makes a workout really, really difficult. And like I said, I have done it on days at the gym before lifting weights where I'm doing 500 or 1,000 meters, but I'm talking doing longer than that, doing an hour session. I don't know if you've seen the actual rowing dudes down your gym smashing it out. They're quite impressive, but you've got to sit there next to them for an hour if people aren't going to get too bugged out at your gym, if you don't have a 30-minute limit. But the big thing with rowing, I think, is how to row. So getting your technique right is going to help you concentrate on the important areas, which are those legs and driving the power through the legs. So I would take some time, if you're going to select rowing, to learn how to row properly. And Thomas Mazzone identified the phases in rowing as catch, drive, finish, and recovery. I won't really get into too much depth in here because it's a waste of everybody's time but in the catch phase the arms are extended and legs are fully bent and the legs are responsible for initiating the force in the drive phase when the legs reach the point of half extension then the arms follow through with a strong pull bringing the bar to the chest and then the legs extend and you reach the finish so one really good thing about this is that you have to maintain a good posture throughout the entire movement which is going to work on the same muscles that you will be using when you're leaning over your bike and so you don't want to slouch or hunch over especially during the catch but you want to hold that position so you can get the most benefit for your body a couple of other things when you are considering rowing Don't set the resistance too high because your power output will drop faster than you might think. It's kind of like that pushing a stupid hard gear or just backing off slightly so you can spin a little more. Your power output would be more consistent under a slightly higher load. And set the resistance in the middle and maintain a high velocity and consistent force. Don't go for these big amps or don't go for piss-weak little pulls. Go for something in the middle that is just a consistent load on your body for the entire time that you're on the actual rower. And so the final thing about rowing is, does it meet my competitive element of the criteria that I set? And I've got to say, I was really, really happy and excited to find the World Indoor Rowing Championships with satellite hookups from around the world. While I don't see many cyclists going in and smashing this one out, you absolutely never know. And it is an option that you can hook up and race with other people around the world. I've got the website in the show notes so you can check out the phenomenon that is World Indoor Rowing Championships. And I've got to say, I fibbed a little bit at the start because I've got a bonus one here. One thing, it didn't fit into the criteria exactly, but I definitely think that it has potential. Hello, welcome to the Orbitrek Elite Endurance Workout. My name is Mindy and I'm going to be with you for this entire hour. We're going to go through a warm-up, we're going to go through a wonderful cardio set, we're going to do some leg training, and then we're going to have a wonderful, nice cool down. So while you're at the gym, jump on the elliptical and make sure that you're wearing your best fluoro spandex and you just rock out on it and don't put full movements in and sometimes drop your arms and then that can transition into using the elliptico bike in the spring for any outdoor training that you want to do ah i am ready for this workout this is all about endurance training endurance is about staying cardiovascularly fit it's a it's about staying in your aerobic zone 
So let me talk to you about. Zoe But seriously, it didn't meet the criteria because there's no elliptical competitions. If you do know of one, let me know because I'll be first one there because I'm such a fan of the elliptical. Not. But what's my pick? Definitely, you could tell that I'm a fan of rowing. And let's have a recap of rowing from a guy that is a non-cyclist trying to sell his indoor rower that he invented as an option. But he sums it up nicely, though. Let's recap. Rowing allows cyclists an opportunity to cross-train while maintaining and gaining cardio fitness, flexibility, posture, core strength, and upper body conditioning. These are all key components for great cycling form, especially for those long rides, hills, and sprints. Cycling is often considered to be only a lower body activity. However, upper body strength is very important. Cyclists can also have a lot of fun with the instant feedback rowing machine monitors provide. Remember, measurement is motivation, and rowing is a great way to give cyclists muscles, body, and mind a little break. Okay, the tech hacks and products section this week, and it's a website called Copy My Sports. If you want to automatically copy Garmin Connect activities to Runkeeper or Strava, then Copy My Sports is the service for you. I don't know about you, but it gets so confusing and annoying when you've got three or four different sites for software that you use, and you want to update to all of them or push them, or you just want to check out one little feature that is in one of them. And so, having a service like this that will push your data from Garmin Connect to Strava, for example, is absolutely perfect for me. Especially because Garmin Connect has some great automatic download capabilities, but you are sacrificing one or the other. So you can do your ride in Strava, but then you have to organize it and get it out or whatever. But this way, you just download it to Garmin Connect, and it pushes straight to Strava. So there's absolutely no problems at all. And I've got to say, I'm happy with these little web apps that keep popping up and making my life easier. Now that quote from the top of the show. It's Nick Strobel, Orica Green Edges chef. The team have been on their big annual training camp, and by big, I mean they're putting in big kilometers over some pretty tricky terrain. They were in my backyard, well, where I used to live, over the last few weeks. And this clip is from Nick trying to teach a few tricks to everybody in Orica Green Edge, and he is super disappointed with how crap they actually are. But you've got to say they are riders, after all. There are no Michelin stars. Here and that is it for this week. So till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. After more than four years of development, we are proud to introduce the Elliptigo 8S, the world's first elliptical bike. The Elliptigo 8S delivers a high-performance workout experience that closely mimics running outdoors while eliminating the impact. By combining the elliptical trainer motion with the functionality of a bicycle, the Elliptigo 8S provides a comfortable, fun, and efficient way to get fit and stay active. The Elliptigo 8S is great for current and former runners, cross-training athletes, and fitness enthusiasts. Really, it's for anyone who wants to get a serious, low-impact outdoor workout. Oh hell no! 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 Oh, hell no. Oh, hell no.